Second Impact Podcast, presented by the American Association of Suicidology. I'm Chris Cosentino, and today we're joined by YouTube's Global Head of Mental Health, Dr. Jessica Defendo Zubin. Dr. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be chatting with you today. Before we discuss your role, our listeners would love to learn more about you and your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and I did clinical work for about 10 years, primarily in university health, treating students and doing a little bit of teaching and research. Um, And in that time, my clinical specialties were anxiety, uh, identity development, crisis response, grief, and a complex childhood trauma. And um, loved doing that, but always wanted to have a bigger impact. And so I went from there into actually employee assistance, where I was a vendor for Google and I ran their clinical services for the U.S. And then uh, transitioned from there into an employee at Google leading employee mental health for the company, which I did. I came on about five years ago as an employee. And then a year and a half ago, over time, I had been consulting with uh, YouTube's health team as they were building out a health content vertical to make sure that we have uh, highly authoritative, incredible health content on our platform. And so I was a consultant on that project from the inception. Um, But we realized, you know what, this is a full-time job. While there have been folks working on mental health at YouTube for years, the leadership wanted to double down and make a deeper investment and commitment in the space. And so they brought me on to lead our cross-functional strategy in that space. And then my team oversees all of our content and product partnerships uh, for for mental health, which is how I'm connected with uh, with your esteemed organization. No, and it's been great. It's been a great partnership. I love our check-in meetings that you have with our team. But, you know, let's talk about this role. What what does the global head of mental health do for YouTube? So if we think about information as a determinant of health, we know that when people have access to high quality information about health, it leads to improved health outcomes. And so for mental health in particular, of course, learning and uh, providing some insight and education about their signs, symptoms, conditions, whatnot, but also it reduces isolation, helps people feel less alone in the process, which is a protective factor for for health outcomes. It uh, reduces stigma, normalizes the conversation, which is so important because that serves as a barrier of access to care. And it can drive help-seeking behaviors if and when folks are ready to to get help. So we think about uh, the onset of symptoms and when people first get help is on average over 10 years, I've seen estimates 11 years, 13 years from onset of symptoms to the time people actually get help. So if YouTube can play any role in reducing that gap and driving people towards help if and when they need it, then that's great. And we can help people at scale. We have uh, over 2 billion active users on our platform globally, and we had over 25 million, excuse me, 25 billion views on mental health content alone globally in 2021. We know people are coming to YouTube to learn about mental health. And so my team is really charged with making sure we have the highest authoritative and credible information about mental health content on our, uh, you know, and we we like to think we do that um, better than anybody else out there. And um, we also make sure we have emotionally helpful 
content on our platform. So that may be like personal stories or lived experience content. And then we also have access to uh, crisis resources for users who may be in acute distress. Excellent. Excellent. Now we talked about the partnership that between YouTube and the American Association of Suicidology, what, from your perspective, how has, what what has that value been to you, you know, be able to chat with us and uh, what have you taken away from, from those conversations? Absolutely. Yes. We have partnerships with your organization as well as global organizations in uh, suicide, self-harm, crisis response. And what is valuable to that is it helps inform our product and policy initiatives. So over time, we've refined our suicide and self-harm policies to make sure that when there's imitable signals or repeatable signals in our content that we actually uh, take that off our platform or restrict it from our youngest users under the age of 18. And so um, our partnership with the American Association of Suicidality has guided our decisions in that space and has highlighted important research or lack of research in the space to help us make informed decisions on our policy work. And then from a product perspective, uh, we actually just had an exciting product launch where we uh, actually overhauled and revamped our suicide self-harm and disordered eating panels for users in acute distress. And your organization's feedback in that process and partnership through the process over the years has helped inform that direction as well. Oh, that's great. And, and you know, just to dive more into it, it, let's discuss that that updated feature that you have and, and what the purpose of it is and, and how folks can can search and, and find it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not uncommon for folks to search for uh, search queries related to suicide and self-harm and really any what we call SOS query. Um, so anything, it, could, it doesn't have to be suicide necessarily, but it could be something alluding to suicidal ideation, such as, you know, I want to die, I want to sleep, go to sleep and never wake up, things of that nature will trigger what we call like a crisis panel. And so traditionally, this crisis panel has said, talk to someone today and then has um, our hotline partnership. So in the United States, that partnership is with 988, which is the, the National Suicide Hotline in the United States. And um, we learned over time from expert feedback in the space from our partnered organizations like yours in the space, as well as our user research on folks with lived experience from previous suicidal ideation, that uh, a couple things. One is that only a small percent of folks who are in an acute distress state or a crisis state would even consider calling a hotline. So more needed to be done to drive users to the appropriate content. Um, as well as uh, the, the feedback was that our, our crisis panel was very cold and clinical. And so what we've done is we've added a warm graphic and we've warmed up the language so that folks feel like someone cares to reduce that sense of social isolation in the moment. We still have our crisis resource prominently displayed because we do know that there is a good number of folks who still will call or text a crisis resource in the moment and that those folks are finding those resources helpful and beneficial. And that is the number one thing that we want to do for folks is drive people to a human to human connection because that is going to be the most protective um, when somebody is in acute distress. 
but we've also introduced self-help topics because through expert feedback, we realized we still need to meet the needs of users who aren't going to call that crisis hotline, even though that's our ultimate goal for them. For those who aren't going to do that, we want to make sure we still have helpful content that service. And so through uh, consultation with experts globally in the space, we've introduced two that we found to be helpful and not harmful, which are uh, building self-compassion as well as grounding exercises with the whole goal and intent to help people sort of refocus on the present moment and sort of get out of that, that emotionally overwhelmed state to find uh, a more helpful pathway to engage in coping skills that can help reduce that acute distress. And then if people want to see the results, they actually have to click through to see the results if they wanted to anyway, which gives users the opportunity to slow down and think, is this content I really want to see? Or do I need to update my search query to actually um, find something that's different? So it just slows users down enough between that risky search query and the content they intend to consume. And it gives people alternative avenues for more sort of health promoting pathways. If people do click through to see the results, I think it's really important to note that we have a feature called a health shelf, which is when you're scrolling, it's a little hard to describe on a podcast, but when you are scrolling uh, horizontally on like a mobile device, you will see a horizontal carousel pop up of videos that says from health sources. And YouTube has worked with the National Academy of Medicine and the World Health Organization to help define guidelines on what connotates um, credible content for health. And so these are going to be major hospitals. They're going to be uh, government health agencies. They're going to be individually licensed uh, clinicians who follow certain evidence-based practice and uh, commit to only sharing evidence-based information. And that health shelf is going to come up as one of the first search results when somebody, if somebody clicks through to see content about suicide and self-harm or disordered eating, you're still going to get really, really high quality, credible information about signs and symptoms, what to do to help somebody in the moment. Uh, sometimes those authoritative sources share lived experience content and stories of hope uh, to help people in, increase hope in that moment. Um, so, yeah, so it is a pretty, uh, what we'd like to think is a more comprehensive approach to supporting users in distress. Yeah, that's excellent. It's it's one of those things. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier people would appreciate knowing that that someone with your expertise is in this role because the rise of social media and, you know, especially with youth using social media and going on YouTube as a parent, you know, my daughter loves YouTube and I'm curious to know what that process looks like if and when something is uploaded that might be inappropriate. Um, what is that process that YouTube will go through to ensure you know, a safe place to watch videos. Yeah, absolutely. So um, through our machine learning, uh, we actually catch upwards of, I can't remember the exact statistic, but upwards of 97, 99% of what we call violative content. And for suicide, self-harm in particular, we remove all content 
that glorifies or promotes suicidal or self-harm behaviors, including disordered eating. And we also remove content that could be imitable or imitatable in nature. And so um, that's really, uh, really an important thing to note. Now, of course, there is a very, very small percent of content that still gets through. And this is why we have uh, human raters that actually go through and have to review this content and uh, take it off our platform as it as it is caught. And our violative view rate, uh, they show the overwhelming majority of content that shows up on our platform is never seen by another human other than the person who posted it. And that violative view rate, we uh, have reduced that percentage year over year uh, over time and continue to do better in that space. And we have a transparency. If anybody's interested in learning more, we have a transparency report that comes out every year so that you can actually um, look at the details of those of those numbers. Wonderful. So, Dr. Jessica, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today and discussing YouTube and all the efforts that you and, and the company make to make it a, a safe place with uh, important educational content. Um, Dr. Jessica, thank you again for joining us and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate our partnership as always. Mm -hmm.